This episode of The Human Experience is brought to you by Dot Yoga. The internet is a rapidly evolving place. One of the recent changes that you may not be aware of are the new categories of domain names that allow individuals and industries a new choice in representing their presences online. Have you heard about Dot Yoga domains? Dot Yoga is exactly like a dot com domain, except they end in dot yoga. This gives yoga practitioners, meditators, and people who enjoy having a choice in the way their online identity is displayed a new and easy way to reference their online presence. Use your dot yoga domain for your website, your email. Set it up so that your fans can access your social media platforms through your dot yoga domain. It's short, easy to remember, and you yogis out there will have an instant connection between your services and the yoga community by getting your .yoga domain today. Get to www.getmy.yoga. Use code HXP2017 for 50% off. Don't be late to this party. Bring your web presence into harmony by upgrading to a dot yoga website and email address today. Welcome to the Human Experience Podcast, the only podcast designed to fuse your left and right brain hemispheres and feed it the most entertaining and mentally engaging topics on the planet. As we approach our ascent, please make sure your frontal, temporal and occipital lobes are in their full upright position. As you take your seat of consciousness, relax your senses and allow us to take you on a journey. We are the Intimate Strangers. Thank you for listening. I'm not saying if you're being, you know, tortured that you should just try to reframe that as an opportunity, you know, to learn how to deal with torture, although actually that's probably a good thing to do. So I'm stressed. If you said, how are you doing? I'd say, it's great. I'm really stressed. I'm leading a meaningful life. I remember I did this in medical school. I had 27 rejections of young women I was trying to dance with. I don't know what was wrong with that. They had to go to my room and smell my breath. What's going on here? You know, and in the end, no one would dance with me, so I danced with him. And when something meaningful is happening, you want to have stress. Now, that's what we're going to call EU stress. EU means good. It's good stress. So a meaningful life is absolutely going to be a stressful life. Everybody should have an integrated brain so that they're more regulated in how they function and can embrace differences and compassionately honor each other's different ways of being in the world. What's up, folks? Wow, what an amazing interview here with Dr. Dan Siegel. If you're interested at all in the neuroscience of mindfulness and what's going on in the brain as we have stress responses, as we experience fear or social anxiety, you're going to want to hear this interview. This is a really great listen, and we get into all of that. Thank you very much for listening. human experiences in session. My guest for today is Dr. Dan Siegel. Dr. Siegel, welcome to HXP. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So I really want to get into your books, Mind and Mindsight and everything mindfulness, but I'd like to get into your background first, please. Can you just give our audience a little bit about your history and yourself, if you could? 
You know, when you say a little bit, uh, I can say I'm a person on the planet. That's a little bit. <laughs> what, what about uh, your education? Can you get into that a little bit? Oh, sure. Um, you know, I, I did my undergraduate degree in college in biochemistry. I did my medical degree and then went on to pediatrics. Then I went from pediatrics initial training to general adult psychiatry training, child and adolescent psychiatry training. Then I was trained as a researcher in um, attachment. Then I became the training director in child and adolescent psychiatry at UCLA. Then I've been in private practice for, I guess, 25 years. Okay. Then I've, I work in a field called interpersonal neurobiology where we combine all the fields of science together into one framework. And I'm the founding editor of a series where we have over 50 textbooks for professionals to kind of look at this way of understanding the mind and mental health and how to cultivate more well-being in the world. Wow. So quite a hub of experience that you have to kind of look back on. When did you get into mindfulness as a practice and looking at the mind specifically and its its response to stress and behavior and those things? So those are two very different timelines. I only heard about mindfulness pretty recently. Oh, okay. Last 10 years, well, almost by accident, actually. I used the word mindfulness in a book with a colleague of mine. We were writing on parenting and we said, you know, gosh, as a parent, it's important to be mindful of your kids. And people thought we were going to teach them to meditate, and I had never meditated before, so I thought it was a strange question and a weird thing to ask me. So I said, what are you talking about? And they said, well, mindfulness meditation. And I said, what's that? And uh, I was so out of it in terms of that field, because I was trying to avoid things that weren't too uh, out there. I was already pretty out there with what I was saying at the university. So, you know, at that time, I learned about mindfulness, but the mind, I became interested in in the 1970s when I was in college and I was taught to work on a suicide prevention service. Mm. It's thought that the way you focus on the mind of another person in a suicidal crisis could really make the difference between life or death. And so for me, the mind, meaning our subjective inner texture of lived life, that part of the mind was crucially important. And so I guess my interest really started as a college student. I'm glad you brought up college because when you were in medical school, you found that the environment and the attitudes there seemed to be less than ideal, to say the least. Uh, How did that affect you? Yeah, well, it's a uh, it's a painful story, and you know I've written about it, so people know about it. But I'll I'll just say that when I went from college, uh, even though I was a biochemistry major, I was you know trained in these other things. Um, I thought medicine would be a great place to explore the overlap between you know, science, the empirical study of reality, including the study of the body, and our subjective reality, the feelings we had, the meaning of life, the stories that drove us to make sense of who we are and how we're connected to each other, all that stuff I put under the word mind. Uh, you know, what was so sad and so painful was that the professors I happened to get, probably it was the majority of them anyway, but really without exception, told me that I, I, I shouldn't be focusing on the feelings of my patients. I shouldn't be concerned about the meaning of an illness in their life. And I was like, wow. I, I thought I was going to lose my mind, and, you know, because they, they were ignoring the mind so much. That it was like a mind-blind world. So I dropped out of school, went on a journey to try to figure out what I was going to do with myself. And after 
trying out different things and thinking about different things, I ultimately decided to go back and see if I could kind of use this word mindsight, the way we see the mind as a kind of life preserver to keep me from, you know, basically becoming insane in that world. Yeah, it's a, such an interesting story. So Mindsight is a method that you created that applies the principles of interpersonal neurobiology to right. improve a person's well-being, right? Exactly. Yep. Okay. So let's get into that a little bit more. Can you tell us more about Mindsight? So, well, Mindsight literally is a word, and it's a word you know, I made up in 1980 when I made the decision to go back to school and couldn't imagine um, the school had changed after the year I was away. So I realized for me to survive, I had to realize that human beings have two kinds of perception. They can perceive the physical world and they can perceive the subjective world of the mind of others and the self. So I just made up that term mindsight for sight, the seeing or perceiving and mind, the subjective world. So that's what the word meant. And then when I became a psychiatrist, I built on that experience as a medical student to say, you know, that mindsight had three components. It had the way you feel and sense another person's inner life, which is called empathy. Mm -hmm. It's the gateway toward compassion and kindness. And you also have, you know, a way of sensing your inner mental life something you might call insight or self-awareness. And that self-awareness is a gateway to, you know, what later became called emotional intelligence. So mindsight was the mechanism that was shared between social intelligence that gives you, you know, these skills of connecting with other people and understanding them, as well as emotional intelligence, this ability to sense your own inner state and regulate it. And the third component besides insight and empathy is something called integration. And there's a long line of reasoning behind that. But the bottom line is, if you take a deep look at science across lots of disciplines, you come up with this really strange proposal that health comes from integration. I know it's simple, but it's incredibly profound when you look at the empirical studies to support that statement. The integration is the linking of differentiated parts and whether that's in the brain or the whole body or a relationship you have with another person or a family or a school or even a nation, you know, how we honor each other's differences and promote respectful, compassionate communication allows a nation or a culture to thrive. And when that doesn't happen, you tend to go toward chaos or rigidity, which sadly we're seeing in our world today. So, you know, you can see even global climate issues as a product of the incredible disregard human beings have had for nature. Hmm. Whether you're looking at the global system or just your own inner life, integration is a, an incredible guideline for promoting a well-being if it's there or for explaining and illuminating the nature of unwell-being in terms of chaos or rigidity if integration is impaired. So to bring about this integration, you practice and teach a technique called the wheel of awareness. Yeah. Well, you know, it's so funny you're, you're asking about this today because my next book is called The Wheel of Awareness and I'm, you know, at the final stages of the editing of it, you know, so I'm kind of obsessed with it. So <laughs> what would you like to know about it? I, I'll, I'll just say this, The Wheel of Awareness, put very simply, came from, I mean, it's a practice and it's an image and that's what it is. But where it came from was two scientific findings. One was that if people are going to change, 
they need to use consciousness, whether it's a school where the teacher's trying to teach kids or a parent trying to help kids grow well or psychotherapy, you know, where you're helping someone change or even the process of, you know, self-transformation, like writing in a journal, for example. So that's interesting when you find a universal pattern like consciousness is needed for change. And the second thing we already mentioned is that integration, the linking of different parts, seems to be what's necessary for health and well-being. So I, and I said, well, with my patients, I said, well, what if you integrated consciousness, you know? What would happen if you integrated consciousness? And that's just a very, very interesting approach that I would take people up from the chair or the couch and walk them around a table we had. Mm-hmm. And I said, okay, if consciousness can be defined as the subjective experience of being aware of, of, of basically knowing, like I say, hello, and you know I said hello. That's the knowing of awareness, right? Hmm. Uh, it also has the thing that you that's the known is the word hello. So at a very minimum, consciousness is the knowing and the known. There's also a knower, which is kind of the combination of the two. So then you could say, okay, well, how would you symbolize this on the table? And I said, okay, well, let's put the knowing in the hub of the table. And let's put the knowns on the rim and let's imagine a spoke. And no one wanted to call it the table of awareness, so we called it the wheel of awareness. Mm-hmm. And we said, okay, the knowing is in the hub, the knowns are on the rim, and let's move this spoke of attention systematically around the rim so that we differentiate, you know, sight from hearing, from smell, mm-hmm. from taste, from touch on a first segment. Then we go through the inner sensations of the body in the next segment. And then we go to the third segment, which is mental activities, like feelings and thoughts and memories. And then there's even a fourth segment of the rim, which is our relational sense, our sense of connectedness to each other. And what was so interesting about it was people's anxiety and depression, sometimes even issues of trauma or even bodily pain, started resolving with this simple practice. And I was really puzzled by it. So I started teaching it to my students. They started feeling relief from those issues in their own lives, started doing it with their clients, their patients, and they started reporting positive responses. So then I started doing it in workshops and I did it systematically with 10,000 people face-to-face, recorded the results. And now I'm writing a book about it because Mm. it's kind of phenomenal. I mean, um, I can tell you the results next, but that's what the wheel is. So the wheel is both an idea, you know, how do you integrate consciousness by differentiating the hub of knowing from the knowns on the rim and linking them systematically with the spoke of attention. But it's also, you know, a practice that people can do. It's about 24 minutes. You can do it. And we've had over a million people stream it from our website. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely fascinating. I've never heard it quite put that way. I want to talk about when a person is going through a stress response and when they're having this sort of flight or fight reaction, what is happening in the brain when, when this is happening? Well, you know, the word stress, I remember reading about it in medical school from the work of Hans Selye. And since that time in the 50s, when he wrote about it, the word stress has been misinterpreted. So I want to just give a little pushback on you're asking the question about stress and and the threat response. Okay. Because it is a classic way people think about it. Absolutely. I would say 99% of people do think about it that way. But here's the deal. The word stress 
really means how your body is readying itself to deal with a meaningful situation. Hmm. So what it means is your heart starts pumping a little faster. You know, you breathe a little more deeply and maybe more rapidly. Maybe your muscles get a little tense. Maybe you have a little sweating. And if you measured in your blood, you'd find the hormone cortisol is sometimes called the stress hormone. It's being secreted in such a way to metabolize sugar so you can respond to this meaningful thing that's happening. Hmm. So it's actually a good thing. When something meaningful is happening, you want to have stress. Now, that's what we're going to call eustress. E-U means good. It's good stress. So a meaningful life is absolutely going to be a stressful life. Here's what the research done in the last few years demonstrates. If you interpret your body's reaction to a meaningful event happening with increased heart rate and breathing and all that stuff as a negative thing, the result will be negative. Now, I'm not saying if you're being, you know, tortured that you should just try to reframe that as an opportunity, you know, to learn how to deal with torture, although actually that's probably a good thing to do. <laughs> but the issue here is that our mind's interpretation of the meaning of our body's response is incredibly important. So I want your listeners to imagine that the mind has a bigger role to play in the physiological outcome of stress than we've ever understood. So you're saying that stresses can be or is actually a good thing? It can be a good thing. If you're helpless, it can become a bad thing. So stress is mobilizing yourself to deal with a meaningful moment in your life. It isn't by itself good or bad. Okay. The stress response is a helpful response. Now, when you're threatened, that's a different thing than just when you're stressed. When you're threatened and you're bringing up a different mechanism in the brain, the fight, flight, freeze, and faint response, you know, then what's happening is, as Steve Porges calls it, an area of the brain that's involved in something he's named neuroception, that's always looking for safety or danger, has assessed danger. So what I would call that, and maybe reframing your question, I would call that threat. Hmm. So we have a threat reaction which shuts off our social engagement system you know, which is where we're relaxed and open and receptive and want to connect with people and even ourselves. And instead, you're turning on the reactive state. I wouldn't call it a stress state. So that in the threat response, the neuroception, the perceiving danger, says, hey, this is super bad. I better fight back. I better flee. I better freeze. This accelerating branch gets all activated. Even the freeze response is like a tightening of the muscles with a lot of energy. You have a fourth F, which is either feigning death or fainting, which is when you feel completely helpless and you collapse. Hmm. Your heart rate goes down, your blood pressure goes down. So these threat states, when they stay for extended periods of time, that's not so good. I mean, I'm turning in a book soon, so I have stress. It's good stress. I'm so grateful that I get to write a book. Hmm. And I love this particular book. You know, I, well, I love all my books, but I, I, I love this book. And it's really exciting to try to put it in words, all the experience I've had with these 10,000 people. So I'm stressed. If you said, how are you doing? I'd say, it's great. I'm really stressed. I'm leading a meaningful <laughs> life. Now, do I feel threatened? No, I don't feel threatened. Yeah, yeah. That makes so much sense. And I love the way that you sort of elucidate these meanings and these terms and the way you speak about them is very clear. And it promotes understanding, which I really appreciate. Well, thank you. Thank you. Because sometimes I feel like I'm a little bit of a 
a nut when it comes to just making sure the words we use have clearly shared meanings. Whatever meaning we want to make of them, let's make sure we're at least sharing them. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so Dr. Siegel, so I, I want to throw an example out you there. You call me Dan, because I don't, I don't know what to do when you say Dr. Siegel. <laughs> okay, uh, Dan, yeah. something that I hear a lot is people who want to be more social, but they aren't, or they're having a stress response that prevents them from being as outgoing as they want to be, or a guy sees a girl that he's attracted to, and he has a stress response that prevents him from talking to her. What area of stress is this in that I'm referring to? You're describing people who are having a reactive state to social situations that involves the fight, flight, freeze, and faint response in some cases. So their behavior is being disabled by the state of their brain and their head, basically, which involves the whole body. So they're not able to uh, engage the way they want to engage. Put simply, they're entering a reactive state, which makes you leave the receptive state and it's really hard to do any of the things you're saying, like you know, meet people or whatever, when you're reactive. Hmm. You may ask me, you know, well, what can they do about that? You know, what's so interesting is in the wheel of awareness practice, people basically learn to distinguish reactive states that are on the rim from what ultimately for most people becomes a sanctuary in the hub. And by harnessing the power of the hub to be a source of tranquility and clarity and stability and peace, then what you do is you say, okay, here's a person who usually when they go in a social situation, they get a standard, I'm scared, I'm scared, I'm scared. But when they do the wheel of awareness practice, instead of that anxiety, which is a rim point, flooding them and they get the way people use terminology, they'll say, I get lost on my rim. Hmm. They've developed the clarity of the hub, which is not in a reactive state. It's the source of what you can call presence. And even though those neural pathways in the brain may still be activated as a rim point, because of the wheel of awareness practice, they're now having the sanctuary of the hub to just look from a bit of a distance at the rim point of, oh my God, oh my God, this is not going to work out. And they go, hello, fear. Thank you for sharing with me. You know, I see that you're so intense and for millions of years, you've probably activated yourself and my ancestors and kept them safe. So of course, there's a feeling of life and death about your message. And I deeply, deeply appreciate you. I'm grateful that for all of us in the past, your fear has kept us alive. Hmm. Here's the deal. For whatever reason, this reaction of fear and a life threat is being activated when I want to meet this young woman or man or whoever I'm going to meet. And, you know, I don't know if that's helpful. So let me ask you, fear, what exactly do you think is the life endangering situation of saying hello to this person? Hmm. Right? Yeah. Oh, oh she's going to reject you. This is the worst thing in the world. <laughs> you know? And what people learn to do is this from the hub. They go, I see you are realizing that in the anterior cingulate of the limbic area of the brain, the feeling of social rejection is equivalent to physical attack. Mm. So you're activating your anterior cingulate sense that if this young woman says, I don't want to dance with you, then it's like being stabbed with a knife and you're going to die. Yeah, that's it. You're going to be stabbed. <laughs> so you go, thank you for sharing. And by the way, 
we are such social creatures that social rejection does feel like it's going to be our death because if we don't belong somewhere, we're going to be somebody's lunch. Mm. So you go, I get it. Thank you. Oh, I love you so much. Thank you. And then you go out on the dance floor. I remember I did this in medical school. I had 27 rejections of young women I was trying to dance with. I don't know what was wrong with that. They had to go to the room and smell my breath. What's going on here? You know, and in the end, no one would dance with me. So I danced with him and then we got kicked out of the Boston thing. It wasn't the thing to do there. But, <laughs> but I thought it was hilarious. You know, by rejection number 10, I was just going, let me see how high this number can go. <laughs> <laughs> and I literally went up to 27. I, I didn't even know there were that many women in the, in the play. <laughs> That's great. So I mean, like, like, what, like what's going to happen? You know, was I stressed? Of course I was stressed. I wanted to find a, a date. I was lonely. So it was meaningful, but it didn't have to be threatening. You see, that's the difference between the threat reaction of fight, flight, freeze, and faint versus, yeah, I'm stressed. My heart is going faster and my blood pressure is higher and they're fine. And then you interpret it. So this is fun. I'm having a meaningful evening. So we went a little bit through the wheel of awareness, and I I kind of want to go back there and teach people how to use the wheel of awareness. But I also want to ask, what's going on inside the brain? Are we changing the way that the pathways are firing inside the brain with the wheel of awareness? You know, the wheel has three major components to it that just, I don't know, it's coincidence or just by logic or scientific reasoning, or I don't know, whatever. But they are completely consistent with the three pillars of mind training practices called mindfulness practices that have been scientifically proven to change the brain in ways I'll describe. So to answer your question very specifically, because the wheel of awareness has these three components and because research has shown these are the three essential components of any mindfulness practice that has been proven to work, then my colleagues say, hey, Dan, your wheel of awareness practice, you may have made it as an integration of consciousness practice, but it meets all of our criteria for a mindfulness practice. So I go, yay, fine, beautiful. And I'm happy about that. That's good. I'm, I'm not trying to be different. I just want it to be useful. So based on that, I would say this. What the mindfulness studies show is that if you have these three pillars of practice, strengthening the focus of attention, cultivating the capacity for open awareness and strengthening your ability to have kind intention. So kind intention, open awareness, and focused attention are the three ways you train. Basically, you're training intention, awareness, and attention. Those are all you know, mental functions. So you're really training the mind in very specific ways. It's incredibly exciting. And what do you do? Number one, you make the brain more integrated. And what an integrated brain means is you grow areas that link differentiated areas to each other. These are the corpus callosum that links the differentiated left and right side of the brain. It's the hippocampus that links widely separated memory areas to each other. It's the prefrontal cortex behind your forehead that links the higher areas to the middle, to the lower areas of the body, and to the social world. And there are other studies even called the connectome, connect, and then the letters O-M-E. The connectome studies are a new way neuroscientists are more, in a more refined way, able to look at like the smaller, if, you know, if, if the big areas I just mentioned are like, you know, how New York connects to Chicago and LA, and you say, well, look at these highways and look at those big cities. That's cool. I mean, that's really cool. But the connectome then would say, 
you know, let's look at the smaller cities and the smaller towns and the villages, and let's look at the smaller roads and highways and hiking trails that connect the whole shebang, you know? Hmm. And that's the connectome. But the bottom line is this. Mindfulness makes your connectome more interconnected. And the absolutely cool thing about the whole business of everything I just said is that a more integrated brain means a more regulated set of processes like regulating emotion, like your fear of saying hello to that girl, like regulating attention, like getting distracted easily, like regulating your memory, like being flooded by intrusive memories, like regulating your behavior and your relationships and your morality. Hmm. You know, so we want everybody in every walk of our life from our spouses, you know, to our principals of our schools, to our presidents, to you know, people at the UN, everybody should have an integrated brain so that they're more regulated in how they function and can embrace differences and compassionately honor each other's different ways of being in the world. That would be an integrated way of being regulated, you see? Mm. So regulation comes from integration. So the bottom line about the brain is mindfulness practices integrate the brain. Do I think the wheel of awareness practice does it? Absolutely. Because all those things I just mentioned change when people do the wheel of awareness practice. And the things that I haven't mentioned are likely to come out too, which are you improve your immune system functioning, you improve your cardiovascular variables like heart rate and blood pressure and cholesterol levels. You raise the level of an enzyme called telomerase to optimal uh, amounts so that you can repair the ends of your chromosomes and keep your cells healthy. And you alter the non-DNA molecules sitting on top of the genome called epi, that means on top, genetic, the genes, your DNA, mm -hmm. epigenetic regulators to help reduce inflammation. So in all these ways, mindfulness practices have been shown to demonstrate all of those improvements, making more integrated brains so you're more regulated in your mind and your relationships and improving the molecules of the body that cultivate medical health. I really, truly admire the work and the wheel of awareness seems like something I'm going to apply and use myself. Well, you know, what's cool about it is like having the, the most fun writing this book. I can't even tell you. I mean, my only problem with this book is it's, uh, I mean, I have a, there's a lot to say, so it's long. I wanted it to be like two pages long. So, you know, these days with the internet, the way it is, nobody's reading books anymore. They don't want to read like these two paragraph blogs. We have a 36-hour training program, you know, that I made for all sorts of people to watch. And then we get these people saying, no, you have to do a two-minute video. <laughs> and I go, what? And they go, yeah, people's attention spans. They read two-paragraph blogs, and they watch two-minute videos. Yeah, You can't yeah. do a 36-hour thing and a 300-page book. So you know, that's my only problem with what I'm doing is, you know, I don't think anyone will read it because it's got all this information we're talking about in it. People just want to hear, like, Tell me what to do. Okay, do this. All right, done. Goodbye. <laughs> yeah, you know, there's also, I kind of want to jump forward a little bit. That's hilarious what you said about writing the book. Um, you have an excellent hand model of the brain that you use to yeah. teach people where the various regions of the brain are. And just to give people the visual, it's the thumb inside the hand kind of made into a fist, right? Exactly, yeah. It's so funny you're saying this because this morning, you know, I, I woke up really early to continue the editing and I had, I came to the hand model part and I said, God, I put this in other books. I probably should take it out. And I said, oh gosh, you know, someone reading this book may not have read the other books. I better leave it in. 
So I left it in. So I'm so glad you're now making me feel better. Thank you. <laughs> so here's, here's the deal. I mean, before I get to the details of the hand model, thank you for bringing it up. And let me just say this about the hand model. The reason people should know about the hand model, and I mean people like adults, adolescents, and kids, is this. You can use your mind to take what you're about to learn about the anatomy of the brain and get your brain to change the way it fires based on your understanding of the brain. And then as you change the way the brain fires, you change the way it rewires. That is, it's gonna change its structural anatomic connections based on what you do with your mind's attention and how you focus attention is shaped by your knowledge and your understanding, which is why I bother writing these books in the first place, you know? <laughs> um, so because when you get insights, here's the story, Oliver Wendell Holmes says, I start the book out with this, you know, a mind stretched to a new idea never returns mm. to its original mm -hmm. dimension. Yes. You know? So this is the idea of the hand model of the brain is when you start learning that you are not passive, you are actively changing the structure of your brain every day of your life. So the question is, why not learn about your brain so you can do it in an integrated way? That's the idea. So if you take your thumb and put it in the middle of your palm, just as you said, and fold your fingers over the top of your thumb, then my daughter says, never say this, so please don't tell her I said this. It's a handy model of the brain. <laughs> She thinks that's dumb. Now, I don't know if she still thinks it's dumb. She said this when she was a teenager. She's not a teenager. I'll have to ask her actually this year. <laughs> so, um, uh, so it's a handy model of the brain. It's a model in your hand. And if you get to know this model very well, it uh, really guides your life in a beautiful, beautiful way. So here's how it works. If you lift up your fingers and lift up your thumb, let's look at the parts. There are four areas we're just going to name briefly. The wrist area of your hand model is your spinal cord. It also represents your 10th cranial nerve, your vagus nerve, but basically it's the pathways from which signals of the body, like heart signals, intestinal signals, muscles, bones, stuff like that, they're going to stream up that area, which is called the spinal cord. So it reminds us that this brain is fundamentally embodied. You know, it's a part of a body. It's not just a transport vehicle the body for this head. The brain, in fact, is in service of the body, not the other way around, as Antonio Damasio, a wonderful neuroscientist, tells us. Second part, if you look in your, your brainstem palm, this brainstem area is the oldest part of our brain. It's 300 million years old in evolutionary terms, but it also developed first in utero. And essentially, it's responsible for making sure the organs of the body work well, you know, digestion, respiration, the heart system. But it's also involved in the fight, flight, freeze, and faint response. So mm. it's really old. It's an old reptilian part of the brain, and it's involved in a threat response. So that's the second major uh, function of the brainstem. So bodily functions and threat response. Now, if we then put the thumb over the top, ideally, you'd have two thumbs to be a perfect model. Most of us just have one because there's a left and right limbic area. This is the old mammalian part of the brain. So it's 200 million years old. Mm -hmm. And it develops only, let's say, halfway uh, in utero. So it's half-baked, if you will, mm -hmm. by the time you come out of the womb. Um, and this area has five major functions that are worth committing to memory because it's fascinating how these five things work together. 
So number one is emotion. The limbic area in your thumb works with the brainstem palm and then your wrist body to create emotion. So some people say, oh, emotion is creating the limbic area. No. Emotion is the way the body, brainstem, and limbic area work together. And ultimately, it also involves the cortex. Mm. So you don't just put emotion in the limbic area. That, a lot of people do that. It's just not correct. Mm -hmm. Number two, the limbic area works with the brainstem to motivate our behavior, drives us to do certain things. And it changes a lot in adolescence. So the emotional life we have and the motivations we have in adolescence compared to our child is very different. That's because the limbic area is remodeling itself. That's number two. Number three is the limbic area by itself has what are called appraisal centers or evaluative centers. These are centers that are finding out what's going on and saying, hey, is this thing happening now meaningful or not? If it's meaningful, you know something? I'm going to pay attention to it. If it's not meaningful, I'm going to ignore it. So that's the first layer of appraisal, meaningful or not. Number two is it says, hey, you know, this meaningful thing that's happening, it's really good. I want more of it, like dark chocolate or something. Or, you know, um, it's terrible. Someone's threatening me, you know. So it's still meaningful, but now I have to figure out what's called its hedonic tone. Hmm. Is it good or bad? And if it's good, how do I get more of it? If it's bad, how do I get away from it? So this hedonic tone thing is really individually set up, you know, so some people can have a different appraisal of one event, and it's very different from other people's. So that's appraisal. Number four is memory. There's the amygdala and the hippocampus are here in the limbic area, and they mediate different kinds of memory. We won't get into it now, but the layers of kinds of things we can remember and then access with recall are shaped in part by these limbic memory areas. And then number five is the limbic area is extremely important for something called attachment, which in this case, we're using the word attachment to mean the close relationship we have with caring others. And so the limbic area is about attachment. It's about memory. It's about, you know, appraisal, motivation, and emotion. So you can see the centrality of it in our lives. And it communicates, if you put the fingers over the top, with the cortex. And basically, the cortex is a more uh, elaborated area in our mammalian history. So it's called the neo-mammalian cortex. Hmm. And the front of it, which would be basically your fingernails would be just behind your forehead. Uh, so your eyes would be in front of where your fingernails are. That's to orient you with the brain. Mm -hmm. And the, the cortex overall is basically, if you had to say, what does it do? It, it's making maps. It makes maps of stuff. Like if we were physically together and I was waving my hands in front of your, your eyes, the back of your cortex maps out sight. In fact, if you're blind and feeling what's going on in the three-dimensional world with your fingers, your fingers would actually take over that same back mm -hmm. area. So it really maps out the three-dimensional world. Uh, the side maps out sound. Areas on the side also map out parts of the body you know, and its physical position in space. And the frontmost part, where your second to last knuckles go forward, is the frontal lobe, and that's where we have associations of thoughts and stuff like that, but it also has the motor strip that drives our movement of our muscles. Ahead of that is the premotor area, and then ahead of that, from your last knuckles forward, is called your prefrontal cortex, which has a very important role. If you look at your hand model, put your fingers back over the thumb, mm -hmm. you'll see it. It connects cortex, limbic area, brainstem, body, and even the social world together. Mm -hmm. So 
This prefrontal region is extremely integrative, meaning there's differentiated sources of energy and information flow, social world, somatic world, brainstem, limbic, and cortical areas, all are coordinated and balanced by the integration of the prefrontal cortex. Such a great way to visualize and have it literally in your hand a model of the the brain. Don't leave home without it. (laughs) So something that I practice a lot is just using binaural beats, hemispheric synchronization. Have Have you found in your research that the left and right brain hemispheres operate differently over certain activities or... Can you get into that, please? You know, just to put a plug in for my neuroscience colleagues, when it comes to left and right side of the brain discussion, for whatever reason, and there's probably many, many reasons, there's a kind of war going on between classic neuroscience folks and uh, people in my field of mental health. So my friends who are neuroscientists will say to you, don't look at the differences between the left and right. It's overdone. Mm. Okay. I just want to honor that. Now, I don't agree with it, like, at all. Uh, but I just want to honor it because, you know, they have their own ways of studying things and their own opinions and perspectives. And it's important to know what that is and really honor it. And I do. Right. But when I look at the research literature myself as a trained scientist, and I apply that science of what's called laterality, meaning there's a difference between the left and the right. And I apply it in my own life. I apply it with my friends. I apply it with my patients, my students. Then here's what I think is going on. There are different ways of studying the structure and function of the left versus the right hemisphere. And classic ways we may have generalized the difference between the left and the right turn out not to be accurate. But other ways of understanding the differences appear to be even more illuminating. So there's a great book by a colleague of mine named Ian McGilchrist called The Master and His Emissary. So the way I summarize it is a kind of um, alliteration of L's, which goes like this. The left develops later, the right develops earlier. That's the first L. The left is dominant for language of a linguistic sort. The right is dominant for communication in the nonverbal realm like eye contact, facial expression, tone of voice, gestures, posture, timing, and intensity of response. Those are all nonverbal signals Mm. that the right is super great at doing. The left is not good at all at doing it. Mm. Mm -hmm. Um, Then you come to the left has a way of, because of the, the way attention works in the left, it basically looks for the details of things. And in doing that, it has a tendency to break things down. And the word for that is ana, which means down, and lies, which is break. Mm. It analyzes things into their component parts, which is cool, really useful. And that propensity to focus on detail and look at them in linear ways makes it so the left hemisphere is great, super great at looking for cause-effect relationships. like. Why did this happen that led to that? And then A went to B that led to C that led to D. Awesome. Fantastic. Can be very creative with linear thinking. Nothing wrong with it. It's all good. Mm -hmm. In contrast, the right, instead of taking things down into their component parts, tends to, because of attention, the way attention is in the right, it's different. 
there's a different stream of attention that is dominant in the structural connections of the right hemisphere that make it see the big picture. So if the left is looking for the literal meaning of the law, the right is looking for intention of the law. What's the spirit of the law? You know, <laughs> if, if the left is looking for the text, the right is looking for the context, you know, um, and it does this because its attentional systems are quite different. And that, that's been documented. And so both sides are important for creativity. Both sides are important for living a full life. You don't have to play favorites to understand the asymmetries. So what gets people, people mad in the neuroscience world is when you'll say things like, oh, the right is creative and the left is just scientific. That's just so not true. Mm -hmm. But people still say it and it's just wrong. Okay, yeah. So this is the problem is that we have old generalizations that turned out not to be true and this should be corrected. But the reality is the input of the body from the heart and the intestines has an integrated map almost exclusively in the right hemisphere. And what that does for the stream of information taking in signals from the body is it means intuition and the feeling of your body is registered primarily in the right hemisphere. Now, emotion is on both sides, but since the body plays a key role in emotional life, raw emotions are felt more readily in the right hemisphere. And what that means is if you want to get in touch with an internal compass within yourself or within others, you got to be ready to give up what schools reinforce in us like mad, that we're linear thinkers, we're given a, a good grade for right and wrong answers, you know, for the right answers and versus the wrong answers. Whereas the right is more into poetry and the meaning of things and the subtle things about how we feel, all the things that were missing in medical school for me. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I actually came back alive when I did a book called Drawing on the Right Side of the Brain in 1980, when I dropped out of school because my girlfriend's neighbor's teacher was Betty Edwards, and she was her first assistant teacher for that book. And she said, what are you doing? I said, oh, I've dropped out of medical school. She goes, oh, here, I'm just starting this, teaching this book that was just released. Why don't you do it? And I did, and it changed my life. Because I realized you can run a medical school just from your left hemisphere, and you can completely diagnose people with diseases and get your Nobel Prizes for all your kind of scientific studies, but you can be completely blind to the mind, wow. which requires that you feel the feelings of others, not just logically look at lab data. Is this also why people say, you know, go with your gut, because your body is connecting into that feeling in your, in your brain? You know, you're not going to believe this, but I was giving a lecture in London, and one of my heroes of neuroscience, Antonio Damasio, he said the most beautiful thing. He said, look, the gut is the first brain. He goes, we evolved this head brain much later. And in fact, it's all about physiology, and the brain is the servant of the body, you know? And it was such a beautiful way he said it. I wrote down the quote. And, you know, it's, um, it's just to reinforce this notion that we're kind of headbrain arrogant when we say, oh, it's all about the headbrain, the headbrain, headbrain. So what you're saying has complete physiological backup. That is, there's a network of neurons around the intestines and around the heart that send their signals up to the headbrain. And the way we take those signals and use it as wisdom and intuition is not a matter of it's absolutely true or absolutely false, 
but it's a part of an internal compass that lets us get guided by important signals that we're never taught in school or usually at home to pay attention to. So the answer to your very simple question is yes. I want to talk about modern technology and where we are today. The internet, Twitter, social media. Do you feel that technology has fed into this feeling of separateness, even though it might be appear that you know we are being social when we're on our email, when we're checking our email, or we're posting on Twitter, or we're, we're checking our Facebook feed, or something like that? I mean, do you think that technology has created this separateness within our society today? You know, it's such an important question. And um, uh, each year I teach at a program called Wisdom 2.0, and we address that exact question. And it's available for free. You can just go to wisdom2.0 and .org and, you know, watch it. Or, you know, you go there, you can be there in person, but you don't need to be. I mean, it's all streamed live free. So, um, so it's a really, really important question we ask over a three-day conference. And it's hard to summarize the easy answer. So I'll say it in a broad way. And if you actually go to my website, drdansiegel.com, you'll find the talk I gave at Wisdom 2.0 last year. What I'll just say is this. I think before there was the internet, there was a lot of isolation. And part of it, you know, is from science's view, I think, of the mind being a synonym for brain activity. So we think the mind just comes from the head, not just from the whole body, where we would have an intuition that there's something more, or not from our relationships. So that's one thing. As a physician, I'll say this. You know, Hippocrates said 2,500 years ago that uh, the mind only comes from the brain and the head. Now, when Hippocrates said that, it set a tone for medicine of our separateness. Now, those things, along with all sorts of other factors that got modern culture to believe we're separate, has made for tremendous pressures on isolation. Now, ironically, you know, you have the internet, which supposedly is connecting us. But if you look at the work of Sherry Turkle, you'll see so sadly, you know, even though there's more like digital connection, there's more interpersonal isolation. Mm. Um, And her work is just fabulous. And when you build on that and say, look, even if the intention of, you know, social media platforms is to connect people, what people have done based on an area of the brain probably called the default mode network, which we're learning a lot about now is uh, and, and this is just a guess, but you know, basically, if I throw up like a bunch of photos of how great my life is, and then you're feeling normal aspects of life, some's good, some's not so good, and you look at my f- social media platform page, and you go, "Whoa, Dan's life is like fantastic. Mine sucks." Already, you are feeling inadequate, and and what happens is this incredible comparative: you versus me, you versus me, you versus me. And once we get into the, you know, you versus me or us versus them modality, it draws on this really painful threat response we have that uh, these things called mortality salient studies show that when you're threatened, you start treating people not like you with more hostility and you just make your in-group the ones you focus on. So what I think is happening then, ironically, is yes, we're getting more isolated, not because I think the people who you know, run these, you know, um, platforms uh, have that intention. But it's one of the, you know, the sad downsides of these incredibly potentially useful platforms. And so we shouldn't generalize and say it's bad. I think what we need to do 
realize that part of the problem is we think the self is a singular noun that we call I or me. But instead, it's really like a verb. And if you had to say it, it would be like a plural verb. So that you and I right now here talking to each other, we're just manifestations of the same essence. Yes, we have bodies that make us distinct. And that's beautiful. That's the differentiated nature of who we are. You can call that me. Mm -hmm. I have a me, you have a me. But we also have a we. And the way you have an integrated life is you live as a we, M-W-E. You realize that every person you encounter, maybe every living being, but let's just start with people, every person you encounter is just a manifestation of you. And as a we, you don't have to say, I don't have a body. Of course you have a body. You should feed your body, exercise your body, sleep your body, enjoy your body. All those things are me. Great. But equally important, just different, is a we identity. And it's kind of like candlelight. You know, we, we raise young children to think, oh, it's all about your wax. And it's all about how cool your, your candle structure is and your wax structure. And hey, you should be the best candle around. So if someone else's light is lit, blow it out. <laughs> so you'll get into the good college, you know. And instead, we need to, we need to cultivate a kind of society, a kind of culture which drawing on the candle analogy, you know, where we realize that if you see someone next to you as a candle is not lit and your flame is lit, lean over, light them up. Mm. And then if you see someone else on your other side, lean over and light them up. Because what does it do to your wick, to the flame on your wick, if you light up someone else's wick? Right. Yeah. Doesn't yeah. take anything away from you, but it makes the whole world brighter we are the light we are the light we're not just these bodily candles we live in and that's the kind of world we need to create the internet can help us do it you know the internet is our tool it's not our tormentor hmm. we need to really empower people to realize we are these plural verbs we are these candles we are the light that emanates from all of us and if we start living like that, we can make this a healthier and more meaningful place for all of us. Absolutely love it, Dan. Thank you so much, sir. I just, um, I'm taken back by your words and just all the science that we've covered and also what you just did at the end here, connecting it all together. And I think it's, it, it's especially important to mention this. And I mean, what are we if, if we aren't helping others or at least giving something else to someone else that's maybe making their day a little bit brighter by doing that? Absolutely. That's absolutely right. Dan, I, I wanted to ask you about one thing. I'm so glad I remembered this. I was taking a shower this morning and I thought of this. I wanted to ask you about some of these other, these plant medicines that exist, such as ayahuasca, DMT, if you want to get into like psilocybin or LSD. How do you feel that connects in with the work you're doing? Have you studied it at all? No, I haven't. You know, there's some interesting studies coming out. I think it's really intriguing and we should be open to it, but I haven't done those studies or I'm not that familiar with them to comment on them, but it's very interesting. Okay. Dan, where can people find your work? Where can people get a copy of Mind and Mindsight? Is it drdansiegel.com? Yeah, D-R-D-A-N-S-I-E-G-E-L.com. And you can do the wheel from there. You know, anywhere where things are sold, you can get books, <laughs> you know. And 
Yeah, we have this great new 36-hour training program that's available for anyone if you really want to dive into this in this super exciting way that's just being released now. We have all sorts of training programs and live events and online things and all sorts of things. So, um, Were you just over at the Omega Institute? I'm going to be at Omega the beginning of September. I was just at the Esalen Institute. Oh, uh, cool. Um, yeah, Elizabeth Lesser, amazing person. We've had her on the show. Oh, great. She and I will be having lunch very soon. Cool. Very cool. Guys, this is the human experience. Please check out Dr. Dan Siegel's work, Mindsight, Mind, A Journey to the Heart of Being Human. Such an amazing reading. I feel like we just scratched the surface with this interview. So yeah, drdansiegel.com is the website. A huge thank you to my guest. Thank you guys so much for listening. This is the human experience. We are going to get out of here. Thank you so much.